All right, as we start, I want you to take your Bibles and go to two different places, all right? Uh, Later, we'll get to John chapter 11. And so take a bulletin and stick it there, and then we're going to be in John chapter, excuse me, in Luke chapter 7 as we roll here. All right, Uh, in about two and a half hours, I'm going to be officiating at a funeral in Beaumont. And so I want you to go with me, not then, but now. Let's just kind of in our heads go together two and a half hours, and as I stand to begin the service to remember the life of this lady, um, as we sit there together, imagine the feelings as we sit and I begin to do the funeral service, and in the back walks none other than Jesus Christ. And he walks up to the casket, and he looks at me as if to say, Hold your tongue, son. And he reaches into the casket and he says to that lady, get up and come with me. All right, now let's just stop there. Put yourself in that crowd. What goes through your mind in that set of circumstances? Now I have to tell you, as the guy overseeing the ceremony, or the service, excuse me, uh, I would be very... Uh, apprehensive about anybody who walks up to the casket in the middle of a service like that. Um, But if we know that it's Christ and he walks up to that casket and he reaches in and he says to the lady, get up, come with me, uh, now my whole thing has changed from is this a nutcase to uh, let's just see what happens, right? So let's suggest that he does that. He says, come up, get up and come with me. And when he does that, he takes her by the hand and she sits up, turns around, looks around and crawls out of that casket. Now you're in the crowd. Now what's going through your mind? (laughs) Now I have to be, I'm going to be really honest with you here, transparent, all that kind of stuff. I'm thinking to myself, uh, what in the world is going on here? All right. Is it the pizza I had for lunch? Or this really happening in front of us. Chances are good that that's not going to happen at 2 o'clock this afternoon in Beaumont. But it does underscore one of the things that we find to be true about Jesus. Jesus had a way, as we work our way through the New Testament, Jesus had a way of interrupting funerals just like that. The passage that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 7, he does exactly that. He interrupts a funeral and raises this person back to life. But that's not the only time we find that in Scripture. In uh, Mark, I think it's chapter 5, Jesus goes to Jairus, and Jairus' daughter is sick, and Jesus is on his way. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, and they finally send somebody and say, never mind, don't bother coming. She's dead. And Jesus goes and he raises her back to life. Jesus had a way of interrupting funerals. And bring in life into them. If those two aren't enough for you, we could go to uh, John chapter 11, I believe it is, which is where I had you turn, and we'll look there maybe in a little bit, uh, where Jesus goes to his friend named Lazarus, and he interrupts that funeral and raises Lazarus back to life. The most famous of all of Jesus' funeral interruptions was his own. On what we call Easter Sunday, the ladies go to the gravesite, to the tomb, to do the stuff that comes with the burial. And the angel says, what does the angel say? You missed it. He's not here. I don't know what you're doing here, but if you're here for him, you missed it because he's alive. 
Jesus had a way of interrupting funerals. And the way he did it tends to be shocking to us. It's really kind of ridiculous in our circle of friends and the way we think in our world today for me to even suggest that at a funeral service, Jesus might show up and he might raise that person back to life. Consequently, when it does happen like that, it's a shocking thing to us. It's totally outside of the norm for us. So here's what I want you to do. As we look at Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, I want you to be really careful this morning that you don't let the familiarity that you have with this story rob you of the shocking nature of what he's doing. That's one of our problems, I think. Uh, those of us who've been in church, you know, we, from the very earliest ages in our preschool and children's area, we tell our children Bible stories. We want to ingrain in them, this is what the Bible says. And you know, ultimately, they have to come to a point where they accept it for themselves and believe it. Uh, but we try to get that, the stories out there. So what that means is by the time you get to be old, like some of you are, You've heard all of those stories hundreds of times and you lose the wonder and some of the shocking nature of what we find when we talk about this Jesus Christ that Brian reminded us of earlier. So let's look at this together. Don't don't get so familiar with it that the message of it doesn't just blow you right out of your seat. Luke chapter 7 Beginning in verse 11, now I need to remind you that we're picking up again. Luke is walking us through this early phase of Jesus' ministry. He is underscoring the authority that Jesus has. And we've seen that authority over sickness and over demons. Uh, As we saw last week, that authority that is inherent in who he is doesn't even have to be generally located near the problem. He can fix it from a distance. So we pick up in verse 11, it says, soon afterward... He went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. And then he came and touched the bier, and the Bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up, and he began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. And they also said, God has visited or helped his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. As we look at this today, I want to show you three different what I consider to be shocking things about this story. Now, clearly the first one is really is going to be our third one. That's the fact that this boy was dead, this young man was dead, and Jesus raised him back to life. That's a shocking thing. We'll get back to that in just a little bit. But there's another couple of them in here that are kind of tucked away, and I want to make sure that we get these because actually what we're about to do here. Um, has the very real potential of taking you wherever you are in your Christian life right now and catapulting you to a whole different level with God. Now, I have to tell you, it's uncomfortable. And it's not easy. 
But we, we find here, and written in between the lines here, I think, is some reality that will take us in our really sometimes simple, simple-minded approach to Christianity and moves it right down into our feet where we live our lives every day. And Luke is taking this idea, this teaching that Jesus is modeling for us about his authority and trusting him. You remember the faith discussion last week, and so now we take it another step. So here's the first shocking thing that I see here. Given the kind of authority that Jesus has, as Luke has laid out for us, we might expect him to be disengaged with the little people. I mean, after all, that is the way our world works, isn't it? You reach a certain point of status or a certain point of power or authority in your life, uh, and you just don't have to deal with some of the people that you used to have to deal with. Let me turn it around because very few of us are at that level. Most of us are at the point of going, I don't get audiences with people because, well, I'm just a nobody. Let me give you the, the best classic example of that. Well, I don't want to say it that way. Have you been to a doctor's office lately? Now, if you happen to be a physician out here, I'm, I'm grateful for you and your training and all of that kind of stuff, but please don't model your business about what I'm about to say, okay? I had a doctor. Now, he's the best doctor I've ever had, okay? Now, as a rule, don't like going to the doctors. You know, just kind of... I just don't. And one of the reasons I don't is because all of a sudden when you step into that medical community, it's as if your schedule doesn't matter anymore. You have to work on their schedule. Have you noticed that? They don't let you typically say, you know what, I'm going to have an MRI. I think I'll do it in 10 minutes. They'll schedule you for one. Okay? Your choices don't matter a whole lot in that I had a doctor. Back to this guy. Okay? <clears throat> now, he's a great doctor. He's so good that I told my son, who still lives where we used to live, you need to go to this guy. He is the doctor for you to go to. But here's the deal with this doctor. If you had an appointment scheduled with him at 10 o'clock in the morning and you showed up, well, let me me just ask, let's just play the game on out here. If you have a 10 o'clock appointment at a doctor's office, what time do you normally try to show up? Don't get there too early because it's not going to matter, Right? So, in this particular doctor, let's say that, you know, because on time is late, let's say you get there 10 minutes early. So you go to the doctor, this particular doctor, you show up at 10 minutes until 10 o'clock for a 10 o'clock appointment, you're going to be sitting in his waiting room at 3 o'clock in the afternoon waiting to go in, I'll promise you. That's not an exaggeration, that's reality. It's so bad, the the guy was a good enough doctor that we continue to go to him, but uh, we complained about that. Hey, you know, we have lives We have jobs that we have to do. So they got to where they would say, if you schedule an appointment, if your appointment's at 10 o'clock, do not show up at 10. We will call you when you're the next patient on the list. And usually that would be about 2 or 2.30, something like that. Okay? Now that's kind of a generic, real life way it goes. Let's pull this authority question to a different level. Now, I've talked to a few of our church members over the last year or so, and it seems obvious to me that a number of us have a few things that we would like to say to President Obama. So if you have something that you would like to share with our president, 
why don't you just hop a plane and fly up there and show up at the White House and say, hey, I need to talk to you, Barack, or Mr. President, if you really want to. Why would you not do that? Because it's a ridiculous statement because in our society, those who have power and authority don't have people just drop in on them. See what I'm saying with this? Somehow we seem to have bought into this thing that says if you are somebody, you don't have to be engaged with nobodies. I'm glad that Jesus doesn't buy into that model. Aren't you? I mean, if you really think about it, you look at the picture that Luke is laying out for us about who Jesus is, the authority that he has that's inherent in who he is and the power that he has. Jesus just decides he's not going to be aloof and disengaged with people, he's going to be involved with people. And so this whole scenario, Jesus is with this whole bunch of people, they're making their way across the countryside, and they come across this funeral service. And instead of Jesus being whisked away by his entourage, he breaks through the crowd and he goes up to where the business end of the funeral is happening. That's a great picture for us. Maybe we should ask ourselves why he does that. Somebody of his person and his authority, what moves him to get involved? Did you see that in this passage? Because the answer jumps off the page for us if we're just willing to see it. Verse 13, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now this is a word that you should be starting to get familiar with. My very first sermon here, the one that I preached on the day y'all were going to decide if I was going to be your pastor or not, I preached out of a passage in Matthew, and it says there that Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Remember that? I know you don't remember that. It's two and a half years ago. But the word itself is a critical New Testament kind of word. It's a Jesus word when you really get right down to it because all through the New Testament, it's only used about Jesus or by Jesus. And it's, it's, a, it's a collective noun. What that means is uh, I can say, you know, a singular noun is I have a finger or I can say I have fingers, okay? The collective part of it. And in this case, we might actually translate the word as guts. I just love saying guts in church because it sounds like I'm swimming upstream with that. That's the word picture. It is a picture that refers to the collective, I had some friends from Kentucky, innards. It's your guts. It's your liver and your heart and your intestinal tract and all of that kind of stuff all wrapped up into one. And the reason it's a word picture for us is because they tried to find a word, the Greeks did here, that would capture the inner, not really turmoil, but the the inner compulsion to get involved to help somebody. It is a very Jesus kind of word. It's used by Jesus in parables like the Good Samaritan. And he passed by and he saw this one who had been beat up lying in the ditch. And it says, and he had compassion for him. Every single time it's used in scripture, whether referring to Jesus or by Jesus in a parable like that, every single time this gut level wrenching that occurs drives the person 
into action on behalf of the other person. Don't miss that in this passage. This Jesus, the one that as we saw the Nicene cry, uh, uh, Creed, we see this great group of people who put their minds to it and try to capture the essence of who he is. We can't even do that because he's God and yet he's man and so our words fail us. This same Jesus now, the one with all the authority who can speak from a distance and heal people, who commands uh, excuse me, uh, demons out of people, this same Jesus sees this poor nobody of a widow. And I say it that way because in their society that's exactly what she was about to become. When she lost her son on that day, all bets were off on how well she was going to be able to live from that point forward in that society. She was going to be totally dependent on the good nature of people around her for her life to even continue. Jesus walks into that. This somebody surrounded by this group of people who are just loving the show that he's putting on and the words that he's saying walking through the countryside and he sees this situation and scripture says that in a very Jesus kind of way he has to get involved. That's the Jesus that we worship. Last week I told you the reality is that we all come to Jesus out of very selfish motives. When we finally realize I need help with this thing called life run to Jesus. What this passage says, right hard on the heels of it. Luke puts it here and he says, not only should you run to Jesus, Jesus will run to you. That's good news. So if you happen to be here today and you're looking at your life going, I don't know what I'm going to do. It took a miracle for me to get so bad off as I am now. I don't don't know what I'm going to do. This same Jesus looks into your situation and he steps into it. Because he loves you. Because he has compassion for you. It's a God kind of trait to have. That's good news. But you know the reality of it is if that's true of him and we're to be like him, that needs to be true of us as it relates to people. But you see, even us, we we kind of fall into that worldview that says, uh, if I've finally reached a point here, then, then I don't really have to be involved with other people. After all, getting involved with other people uh, is really not convenient most of the time. You remember several months ago, Dr. Rick Yount was here. One of the classes I had with him in seminary way back in 18th century, seems like now, He was telling us about some of the struggles that he was having. He was a full-time professor at Southwestern Seminary, and he was also a full-time minister of education at a church in the Metroplex. Now, how he pulled that off, I have no clue, but he did. And one day in class, he was talking to us about some of this kind of stuff, and he said, you know, guys, uh, the tendency we have in our church life is to get so busy doing ministry stuff that we don't like to be interrupted in the process. He said, for instance, I was uh, sitting in my office the other day and, and I'd come from school and I'd gone to the church and I had to get ready for a teacher's training thing. And so I was working in my office and I was working on a passage of scripture out of Mark chapter 5. Uh, and while I was doing that, uh, knowing that I was up against a hard deadline with time, he said, my secretary buzzed in and said, so-and-so is here to see you. 
And he said, I thought to myself, no. So he asked the secretary, does she have an appointment? And the answer was no, but she says it's important. And so he says, I'm thinking to myself, I don't have time for her. And then God took me right back to the passage of scripture that I was dealing with. It's that passage of Jairus' daughter that I mentioned earlier in this sermon. And if you go back and read Matthew, or Mark chapter 5, you'll find that Jesus is approached by these people. They say, hey, this guy's daughter is sick and uh, you need to go see what you can do to help her. And so that's an interruption. And then he goes and he's on his way to go help Jairus' daughter. And while he's going, you have the situation with the woman who has an issue of blood. You remember that? You know what that is? That's an interruption. Jesus is on his way to do ministry and some selfish person touches his garment. You remember how Jesus dealt with that? He looked at her and he said, I don't have time for you. I've got to go do ministry. Is that how he did it? No, okay? In case you think I just said Jesus did that, that was not true, okay? Jesus didn't do that, which is exactly my point. And it was Dr. Yant's point too. See, the reality is that ministry, if you're willing to do it at all, tends to be inconvenient for us. That's especially so if we have a little bit of status and they need me somewhere else. The way of the world says those with authority can disengage from the little people. Jesus says, not in my kingdom you can't. It's a little shocking to me what he does there. So let's look at the other thing that I find to be shocking in this. Back to it. Back to, that is chapter 7 again. And we find in verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, What did he say? Now, this translation says, do not weep. Your translation might capture the Greek as it's really written here, which is, stop crying. Now, you know what my response to that is? Really? (laughs) Are you serious? Now, this is kind of one of the... When I start talking like this sometimes, church people sometimes get a little bit nervous that I'm going to be like, uh, you know not so nice with Jesus, like that's irreverent or something. Put yourself in the situation. Put yourself in the situation where you're the mother, the widow, this young boy is yours, and you're about to bury him. And all of your life has changed in an instant. In Jewish society in first century, they would have buried him the same day that he died. This is raw emotion time. And Jesus walks up to her and he says, of all things, stop crying. Now, you know, in our house, we said it this way. Dry it up. (laughs) Really? Doesn't that come across as just a little bit insensitive to the situation? It's not irreverent to talk about that. That's the way it is. If if I try that at that funeral this afternoon, they're going to run me out of that building. Because it's it's offensive to us. What do you mean, stop crying? That's, this happened to us. I, I you know, a lot of who I am. I don't know. I don't think I want to say it that way. Uh, I, I don't like a lot of preachers. 
Is that, is that all right for me to say that? Um, and in one case, I had good reason not to like this one guy. Teresa's father died 15, 20 years ago, something like that. And we were at the funeral. He was a deacon uh, at the church they were in, First Baptist Odessa, a large church. He was a Gideon. Had three daughters and a wife that he left behind, plus a lot of grandchildren. And some son-in-laws who loved him a lot. And so there we were at her daddy's funeral, sitting on the front row, not the front row, the second row, right down close to the front. And the preacher gets up, and he looks down at these three daughters of the man that we're burying. And they're mourning his loss. And the preacher says, why are you crying? In Christian love, I wanted to get up and just work him over. You know what I mean? Is that okay? For... How insensitive can you be to say to a group of girls whose father has died, why are you crying? Hello, he's dead. Now, the pastor was smart enough to take them beyond that statement. And his whole point was, your daddy's not in this box. Because he knew Jesus Christ, he's more alive today than he's ever been alive. I will say that this afternoon at the funeral that I'm going to do because that's good news, right? But here's the difference between what he said and what Jesus does here. That lady doesn't know what Jesus is about to do. Now, he does. There's a good spiritual truth. Matter of fact, I, I told the earlier service, I'll just say it the same way for you. I don't often say things that are profound. You know, like, you should remember this kind of stuff. Uh, So when I do, I like to give you a heads up before it gets there, okay, so you don't miss it. This is important. What I'm about to say is, I think, a profound truth as it relates to how we live the Christian life. This is the part that I was talking about earlier today when I said this will get down in your feet and it will take you to a new level with God in your Christian relationship. Here's the truth. Jesus was able to say this to her as insensitive as it seemed because he knew what was coming. It doesn't change the fact that she did not know what was coming. She was locked in the present grief. The pain of the now was where she was living. Here's the truth. God speaks into our pain from a point of settled future rather than an unsettled present. Let me run that back by you. God speaks into your pain from the point of a settled future. He knows where he's taking you, rather than from an unsettled present. Because when we get into the unsettled present and the pain that comes with that, all we know is the pain. And we need him to come in with some kind of a word, some kind of a promise, some kind of an assurance that says the pain of now is not final for you. So stop crying. That'll take a while for that to seep down into the deepest parts of how you live. Let me give you an example. This is in John chapter 14, actually. Jesus had been telling his disciples that he was going to move on. 
that his life here was just about done, his ministry here was just about done. Now, again, this is one of those deals. We know the story, and because we know the story, sometimes we lose some of the, uh, the emotion and the uncertainty that's tied into it. Jesus had said to these disciples, come follow me. And they did. They left everything behind. They left relationships behind. They left careers behind. And they followed him. And as they followed him, they began to recognize that he was more than just a prophet. As a matter of fact, Simon Peter will come to say, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. And tied with that were all of these expectations. Part of that was because you're who you are and we're your chosen disciples, we got it made. And so when Jesus steps into that and he starts saying, okay, guys, I'm fixing to leave, they don't get it. One of the reasons they don't get it is because they don't want to get it. What do you mean you're going to leave? You, you, you can't leave. What about us? So it starts working on them. So in John chapter 14, Jesus comes to them and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, time out, stop, full stop. What? (laughs) Our reality is this, and you're saying you're leaving. What do you mean don't let your hearts be upset over this? Jesus has a way of almost denying what we're feeling now based on what he knows he's going to do. Now, I don't mean that in a bad way. Actually, that's a very healthy way because when we can take that faith we talked about last week, the centurion, you remember that? You don't even have to come. You have authority. You just say the word and it'll happen. And so when Jesus says the word, sometimes the word doesn't seem to fit the pain of the moment. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are... Many mansions, many rooms, he says. And I go there to prepare a place for you. Well, that's sort of good, but you're still leaving. And then he says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, you got to know I'm going to come back and get you. (laughs) That's good news. Especially when you're in the pain of the moment and it looks like you're all alone. And so the unsettled present looms large in front of us. Jesus steps into that based on compassion. And he gives you a word that has to do with the end result. So stop crying. Let not your hearts be troubled. I got this, is what he's saying. But you see, our problem with that is we get so situationally focused that we don't really give him much space to be God tomorrow, today. We just want him to fix today. But see, that's where faith comes in. So let's pull what we saw last week with what we're seeing here. If he really does have authority where he can speak it from a distance. In this case, he walks up the ultimate enemy in life is death. As one preacher said, this is a closed system. Nobody gets out alive. Not necessarily with him. And so he steps into that painful present and it leaves you and it leaves me with choice. Will I trust his authority? 
Is he bigger than this mess? If you say yes to that, it opens the door for the next question, which is, do I trust him to have compassion for me? Because it's one thing to have the authority and the power to deal with the situation. It's another thing totally to have that authority and say, okay, now I'm going to do something about your situation with it. So it's a faith deal. How much are you capable of trusting God for in your life today? I think it's important that we recognize this woman's faith is not on the line here. Jesus intends to raise this boy from the dead regardless of what she believes. So we need to make sure we get that. I did my taxes this week. I love being an American. I love writing out a check to the government because they don't get nearly enough money out of every check. So, um, so let's say you're going to do your taxes. Are you, you are going to do your taxes, right? Do that. If you don't, I'll come see you in prison, but I'd rather see you here. Um, so... Let's say you finish doing your taxes and you realize you have a $100 tax bill that you owe the government, but you don't have the money for it. Do you have faith enough in God that he could get you 100 bucks if he needed to? If you really needed it, could you believe that God would be able to get you 100 bucks if you needed it? Hello. Okay. I, I get the reluctance there. Let's make it harder for you, easier for you. What if you did your taxes and you realized that you owed $100 million to the government and you had till April to come up with it? Could you trust God for that? Now, first of all, if you're making, 100, if you're making enough money to owe $100 million in taxes, I need to talk to you about tithing. <laughs> no, I don't either. That's between you and God. But seriously, if you owed $100 million, could you trust God? Did you have enough ability to believe that he really could provide that and cared enough about you to come through for you? You see, the reality is we all have our levels of ability to trust God. But God's always interested in enlarging that ability in you. He wants us to understand his authority. It's not limited. We found that in Luke's gospel already. But he also wants us to understand his compassion for us. I'm not talking, please don't misunderstand what I'm talking about with all this faith stuff you hear on TV. This is far and away more biblical than what you hear from them. God has a way of saying to us, well, I'll just put it straight up. Scripture says in a number of different places the importance of faith and the just shall live by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. This is not you getting wealthy. This is you going to a level in your relationship with God that's far, far beyond the basics of Christianity. Got issues with your kids? You think God cares enough about that? You think God has the authority and the ability to step into the life of your kids? You think he cares about them? Let me tell you something. God loves your kids more than you do. And he's well, well, well equipped to bust their chops better than you could if they're rebellious. So get out of his way and let him do it. But then again, maybe faith's not at that level yet. See, this is fundamental Christian living, but it's advanced. 
Jesus speaks into the pain of this lady's situation based on an accomplished, a certain outcome when all she can see is the uncertain now. What about you in your life? Where's God in your life right now? What's the situation that you're in that if God doesn't come through for you, you're sunk? And what do you do with that? Let's pray. Father, we need help with this because we really like comfortable, settled, no questions asked kind of living. And yet we know that you supernaturally engineer our circumstances to get us to places that we have to choose whether we'll trust you or not. And so help us to see that. Give us the grace we need to step out of the chair of authority and allow you to be who you are. To trust your love for us, not that beg you to get involved, but just to look for your hand. We struggle with this. So we ask you to help us. And in doing so, Father, we know that as we continue to walk in these steps, people around us will have the same response that those people did there that day when that boy raised back to life. Surely God has visited his people. We want to see that. We want to be part of that. We pray that you would help it to be so. Christ, then we pray. Amen.